Crowd's gone now. The arena, it's empty. It's been a long night of work in the ring, and now that it's all over, you're left with bruises, scars, and a chicken in the seat across the aisle. No matter, though. You'll be back home in a few hours once the bus bounces its way into Mexico City, pretty close to the hotel that you've been calling home. Tomorrow you'll wake up, walk down the hall to meet a guy named King Haku to make plans to go bowling. Then you'll get ready to hit the ropes in front of the fans with another dude named the Ultimo Dragon. That's life on the road for a professional wrestler in Mexico. Put a few pesos in your pocket and get ready to do it all over again. At least, that's what life was like for today's guest, Corazon de Leon, who joins us now to talk about La Vida Lucha Libre. Welcome back to the Get Lost Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sills, freelance writer for outlets around the globe. Today's guest is an author, podcast host, and an alumni of Red River College's journalism program in Winnipeg, Canada. He's traveled the world as the lead singer of gold record recording rock band Fozzy, and as an eight-time world champion in the world of professional wrestling, by popular opinion, he's one of the best to ever do it. His name is Chris Jericho. And he joins us now. Hey, Chris. What's up, dude? Long time no see, man. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. I, it's been a while. I'm excited to talk to you because I, I don't think I've seen you since Fozzy was playing in Liverpool a couple years ago. Yeah, we ran into each other in Liverpool, um, which was almost two years ago. So it's been a while, man. But looking forward to uh, to rocking with you now. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. Um, so Fozzy is your rock band. You've been playing with them for, what, 20, 20 some odd years? Yeah, I think uh, 2000 is when we kind of officially started. So about 23 years now. Absolutely. So timing for this show is awesome, man, because I just saw that Fozzie was able to play Wembley fucking stadium, dude. Um, Can you talk to us about that? It was huge, mega, mega event. And your band got to play and you got to stand in the legendary footsteps of Freddie Mercury, really. Well, yeah, it was a huge weekend for us. Obviously, we had All In uh, with AEW, which was the highest uh, ticket-selling show of all time, 81,300-plus. Unreal. And had the idea to sing myself to the ring uh, with Fozzie. So we then decided to do a headlining show on the Friday night, which was our biggest headlining show ever, the most tickets we've ever sold. And then we did Wembley on Sunday at the most tickets ever sold wrestling show and got to play, uh, got to play Judas. Um, like you said, with a little bit of a Freddie Mercury tribute sing along beforehand. So it was a, a pretty good weekend for us. And the fact that we'd been doing this for, like you said, 23 years and have, you know, the two biggest shows we've ever had as our last two shows, you know, our most recent shows. So I would say, I mean, that's a pretty good, pretty good gig for a band that's been doing this as long as we have. So we continue to, to, to build and grow. And that's the most exciting thing about Fozzie is it just, we just never know what's going to come up next, whether it's, you know, playing Wembley or playing in London in front of the most people we've ever had. So for our headlining gig, so it was, it was a really cool weekend for us. I mean, what did that feel like to be not only on stage in front of 81,000 people? Cause you're used to wrestling in front of crowds. Not that, not that big, but some close to that big. But you actually had the mic and you're singing. You're there with your friend Rich Ward and the band. And um, I mean, you, you brought your boys with you. What did it feel like? I mean, it's one of those things where like, you know, you've, you've wrestled in front of that many people. Well, I mean, we haven't, but we've, like you said, slow, close to that. But we've played in front of 40,000 people at Download in England. So, you know, we, it's not like we've never played in front of 
Mm-hmm. We, we, we opened a stadium show in LA for Iron Maiden, you know, back in 2019. So we, we, We've had those types of experiences with Fozzie as well. So you take them all in stride. Obviously, when you're playing a giant stadium show, you are doing your best to appeal to a giant, moving, breathing, faceless entity. Yeah. You know, when you're playing in front of 10 people, it's way harder. I'd rather play in front of 80,000 people than 10 people any day of the week because 10 people or 20 people or something like that. Not that we had done that in a while, but I've wrestled in front of that many. Fozzie's <laughs> played in front of that many back in the day. You know, you think, oh my gosh, there's so many people. You must be nervous. No, that's where you thrive. And that's where you uh, really enjoy what's going on and really feel the moment. It, it, it's it's when you have smaller crowds that you have to work actually harder because you need to make sure that everybody there is having a great time. Where, where Whereas when it's a bigger crowd, it kind of all uh, emanates a good time just because it's such a big celebration. Yeah, for sure. Have you been in front of a crowd like that where there's like five or six people and you're just like looking in horror at the people that are like at a table? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the hardest thing about playing in front of a small crowd is, is you, you know, we have a model 10 or 10,000. You know what I mean? Whether And that's been that way for wrestling, too, when you first start out. Like, if 10 people show up, you want to make sure they have a great time so they go tell their friends. And next time you come back, you have more people. But the, the hardest thing is, 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 like, making sure that people don't feel bad about being there. Like, you always kind of make the wrong decision. Like, oh, man, like, why am I here? There's only yeah. 10 people here. This It's like going to a party and like, there's no one there. Like, this place sucks. We're getting out of here. That's when you, like, want to leave, but you don't want the band to be, like, insulted that you're <laughs> – yeah, and you kind of feel bad about it, and and you know, um, so so when you have a smaller crowd, you you do have to work harder to to keep people entertained and get them into it. And listen, I can do it. You know, I've done it with wrestling, I've done it with Fozzie. But when you're like I said, playing in front of these giant gargantuan crowds, it's kind of you know your rock star dreams come true, and, and you know it's a little bit nerve wracking, and you got to make sure everything's right. And for me, like you know, I'm singing in front of eighty one thousand people, and then I have to literally run down a flight of stairs and crawl down a ladder to get to the bottom of the tunnel in time to hit my cue for the Judas lyric. So that whole time I'm, someone was like, Oh yeah, you sound like he was out of breath. Well, I wasn't out of breath, but you fucking run down a flight of stairs, run across an aisleway, climb down a ladder and get to the ground. Just time to say you are beautiful. Like, you know, like it's not <laughs> the easiest thing to do, but once again, you do what you have to do to make it work. And we started on the platform, yeah. which is the Freddie Hayos. And at first, like, well, you can't start on the platform because there's no way to get down to the tunnel. And I was like, well, there's always a way to get down. Like, fucking put a parachute on me or whatever. Like, let's find a way. Give That's me a right. ladder. You're going to rappel ladder. down. You could do yeah, that. I, yeah, I, re- I repel. I can do that, too. So we, we we got the ladder. And you realize, like, well, we didn't think you would do that. Well, I had to do it because I need to get from up here to down here. Other people might, might not have done that, done that, but other people aren't Chris Jericho. To me, it's like, don't tell me why something can't work. Let's figure out a way to make it work and let's do it. And that's what we did. That's totally. And you get down to the ring and you guys, you and Will Ospreay, you put on one of the greatest shows of the match. I actually ordered the pay-per-view because I knew we had this podcast coming up and I'm like, I got to see what they did. And I was blown away like this. This Osprey guy, this is not wrestling that I grew up watching in the 90s. Like, right. He is high flying like they, they have to train in acrobatics or something. Well, it's changed now. You know, I, I know you want to talk about Mexico and we will, but we were yeah. talking about high flyers in the early nineties when I started, you know, doing a moonsault was a big deal. Oh it yeah. Really you were one of them. Well, yeah. Doing like a, like a, we used to call it a reverse victory roll, which is essentially a Frankensteiner. I mean, that was like unheard of at that point in time. I remember yeah. I'd seen Shawn Michaels do it SummerSlam 88 or something. and just thought like, I can't believe I'm, I'm seeing this. So you look at where it's evolved to now to where guys like Will Ospreay, like I don't even really count Will Ospreay as a high flyer. Like he is a high flyer, yeah. but he's so much more complete. Like Kenny Omega, not really a high flyer. I mean, when these guys are doing moves, especially Osprey, but you know, if someone like Phoenix, okay, that's a high flyer. I mean, well, Darby Allen, that's a high flyer, but these guys are doing stuff that's a million times more advanced than the stuff was when I was at that era, which was a million times more advanced than other guys up to then, had done so the business continues to evolve and the the acrobatics and athleticism is so far above and beyond what it used to be which is great but it's still wrestling and and still wrestling is about timing and about intensity and about you know not what you do and when you do it i think when when a guy like will osprey works with me i think he'll tell you it's like we're really finding the right spot to put these things taking a little bit more extra time when we want to have a little bit more extra time 
you know, and there's things I would have done differently in that match. And there's things I wish Will would have done differently in that match. And we worked together to make the best possible performance. Like you said, it was voted one of the matches of the night. Uh, I think it could have been better, but I always think that about all my matches, both on my end and on my opponent's end. I think that's what keeps you constantly striving to, to do the best you can and, and to, to be better is to constantly be watching your work and go, that could have been different. This should have happened differently. And when you do that, you'll always end up uh, improving yourself and, and your work. I don't think anyone would complain if there was a, a round two of that in Japan and a round three of that in USA. Uh, you're welcome. For that. Yeah. Um, I mean, once again, you know, Will, and actually Will contacted me a few months prior mm-hmm. for us to, to do that match. And, you know, it took a while to get it done politically and and, and all that sort of thing because Will doesn't work exclusively for AEW. But once once we started putting that into the into the into the uh, atmosphere, we knew that we were going to do something special. And that's kind of why we uh, we wanted that match so badly. And it's why we uh, put on such a great show. And like you said, that was the first time we've ever been in the ring together. Never that's touched. Unreal. Prior, I mean, obviously he beat me down on Dynamite a few weeks prior, but we'd never had a match before. So whenever you find somebody like that, reminds me when I worked with Brian Danielson last year or mm-hmm. Undertaker 10 years ago, you work with somebody for the first time ever and you go, where have you been all my life? Like this guy's next level amazing. And that and that's kind of, uh, that's kind of something that I think we knew that we'd have something special. And I was laughing too, because there's so many like critics like, oh, why would you waste Will Ospreay and Chris Jericho, Chris Jericho? And it's like, I kind of know what I'm doing and I kind of know how to have a good match. And so does Will. So I think you should just shut your fucking mouth and let us just do our magic. And here we are with one of the best matches of the night, which I knew it would be. Uh, How could it not be with Jericho and Ospreay? So it's what we strive for. And it's what we did. and, And I'd love to do it again with him. Yeah, and it really did rock, man. I have to ask, it's the perfect segue into our show today where we're going to talk about your early career in Mexico. But I have to ask, you you did not come out on the top of that match. Um, obviously, you want to win every match probably, but what is it like? I mean, you're still there. You're still experiencing it. You still get a sense of pride for creating that? Well, I mean, yeah, obviously. I mean, winning and losing, it's 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 so secondary uh, in what wrestling really is, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's putting on great performances and, and yeah, the, the, it's the finish of a movie. Somebody wins and somebody loses, but how are the performances? How was the story? How was the action? And did you like it overall? So to me, I mean, I think if you look at my career, I think if it, when I did the the complete list of Jericho, the book of every match I've ever had, I think my win loss percentage is like, 40% to 60% or something like that. Oh, like, really? That's amazing to me. I, I would have never thought that. Yeah, I don't think it's it's that impressive. But um, as a matter of fact, I have it right here. We'll look and see. Yeah. So Chris is talking about his book, Complete List of Jericho. You can order it at bookstores everywhere. So I, I kept a list of every single book, every single match I've ever had. And at the end, I just did a bunch of statistics and charts and graphs and stuff like that. And you can see, uh, yeah, my win-loss percentage. Well, actually, it wasn't too bad. 52% wins, 45% losses, and 3% draws. That's my overall career uh, uh, trajectory as of uh, October of 2020. But that's my point. So you don't have to win all the matches to, to be good at what you do. That's not what wrestling is all about. So, yeah, I mean, there's certain nights when you know you have to win. There's certain nights when you know you have to lose. There's certain nights where it doesn't really matter either way. Just what can we do with with the the overall storyline? And with Osprey, it was a night where where he 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 needed to win that match. And and but when you look at it from from a overall standpoint, we both won huge. Yeah, for sure. And he even got a tattoo I saw online, a tattoo of the date and the attendance record and all. That. It's a really cool looking. Uh, oh, really? That's cool. You, yeah, it's neat. It, it's like done like a clock kind of. It's super cool. Oh, shit. That's very cool. Everyone knows what they say about fish stories, but this one is true. A while back, I was mountain biking along the Arkansas River near a place called the Big Dam Bridge. In the distance, I could see the afternoon sun falling over Little Rock's lone round peak. Beside me, I saw a tranquil, rippling pool next to an old railroad bridge, secluded from the rapid river's flow. It was exactly the kind of spot that I'd biked there for. So I hopped off the bike, reached into a backpack, and pulled out a fishing rod. Then I spent the rest of the afternoon watching time slowly roll by in the warm afternoon sun. I even caught a few fish right there in that spot. 
with my bike laying on the ground and the shallow sand beneath my feet. This is the kind of fishing story that doesn't have a big catch or a record bass attached to it. It's just a peaceful afternoon by the water, the kind that helps you unwind from all of the problems in life. If you listen to this podcast, chances are you've got a nose for adventure yourself. And if that nose leads you to the water, I suggest picking up a tool that can help you enjoy more moments like these. When I travel, I often pack a fishing rod, and though many portable options abound, I like the rods from Wisconsin's St. Croix rods the best. St. Croix's Avid Trek and Triumph travel rods break down into a case that fits in a backpack, or an overhead bin, or behind just about any car seat. They're designed in the USA and made with care from a family-run company that knows some fishing stories don't require any exaggeration. Sometimes, just being on the water is enough. You can learn more about St. Croix's travel rods at stcroixrods.com, and you can tell them to get Lost Podcast sent you. Now, back to the show. Um, hey, listen, so let's talk about Mexico. Um, obviously, now you're one of the greatest of all time. I don't think that's disputable. And even casual wrestling fans know who Chris Jericho is by now. Um, they're you. up there with, with the Stings, with the... Uh, um, legend of the sport, the Andre, the Giants, the Rocks, the Stone Colds. You're with those guys now. That's your legacy, I think. But let's talk about a time before you were this version of Chris Jericho. This is almost 30 years ago, and your career is just getting started. I was living in Calgary, and that's where I trained. And a friend of mine by the name of Mike Lazansky had uh, a lot of inroads because he, he was a very likable guy, very nice guy. So he had a lot of connections with Bad News Allen, who was living in Calgary at the time, and a couple of the big names like that. And I think Bad News, who had worked in Mexico, got Mike hooked up with working in Mexico. And Mexico City, obviously, was kind of the big leagues. There was kind of an, a few satellite leagues, and one of them was in Monterey, Mexico. And that would be like, let's say, an ECW, for okay. example. So it, it was like in Mexico, you had a connection with a, a really prominent promotion, but it wasn't like the A tier. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have a connection with anybody. Mike had the connection in Mexico City, and somehow he went to one of these outposts, which was in Monterey, Mexico, mm-hmm. with a guy who just passed away a few weeks ago called Carlos Elizondo. He was the promoter. And so these guys would be like, on a Sunday afternoon, they would bring in a couple names from Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Like at the time, it was Black Magic, who was Norman Smiley, or it was Vampiro, uh, Canadiense, who was super huge. Those types of names, Negro Casas, like the big stars of the early 90s. And the rest of the week, they would just do local shows with their local crew. So you'd do, let's say, a Friday, Saturday locally, and then Sunday would be the big show at a place called uh, Plaza Monumental, which is a big bull bull ring, and they would do the Sunday big show. So Mike got an offer to go work there, but he needed a tag team partner. And he knew me, and then we had kind of been friends. So we went to Monterey. Uh-huh. As Los Gatos Salvaje, which was the Wildcats. Okay. It's, he was Tigre Canadiense, Canadian yeah. Tiger. And I was Corazon de Leon, or at the time it was just Lionheart. Um, uh, Leon de Oro is what they call Leon de Oro. And yeah. So I didn't know there was a, a tiger, and that's how you became a lion. There's a tiger version of this. Yeah. Game. I always wanted to be like, I was watching a lot of New Japan at the time, and I wanted to be an animal because all the guys that I admired. Chris mm-hmm. Benoit was a Pegasus and Eddie Guerrero was a tiger and Tuco uh, Scorpio was a flying Scorpio. And then you had an ultimate dragon and you had a, you had a liger uh, long before Napoleon dynamite. I knew what a liger <laughs> was a lion and a tiger combined, you know, so you, you had a lot of those types of animals there and I wanted to be an animal too. And I just always liked the idea of calling myself Lionheart. Plus it was a connection to the Hart brothers where I train in Calgary. And I just, I actually used to even spell it lion H A R T Lionheart. Oh, that's cool. I never realized that. Yeah. So, so that's kind of where it started uh, was going to Monterey with Lazansky uh, and, and kind of working there. And sometimes you'd have one or two matches a week, but the Sundays were where you would really work. And one, one Sunday, it was the, the, the big main event that they were bringing in from Mexico City to Monterey was, was Black Magic, who was Norman Smiley, was the, was the champion. Uh-huh. And there was no dancing Norman Smiley. This guy was a badass. He was a great shooter that was trained by the Malenko brothers. He was big, especially for Mexico. He was a good heel. Wow. Uh, totally different character than what you might have seen in, on WCW in exactly. the 90s with and the yellow too, tights. 
Yeah, and he was black, which you don't have a lot of black people in Mexico, so that made him stand out. And, you know, that's the truth, especially at the time. His name was Black Magic, and you could probably never call yourself that now. But so, so, so he was coming in against against um, against Vampiro. Vampiro got hurt, mm-hmm. so they were looking for somebody to kind of be like, you know, okay, Vampiro can't work. He's going to be at the show because Vampiro was super popular. But we're going to put this local kid in in his place. And for some reason, Elizondo chose me. But do you you know why? I don't know why because I, I guess he just liked me. I mean, I don't. He could have chosen Mike. He could have chosen any. There's the Umberto Garza was there. Uh, uh, Hector Garza. Those guys came from Monterey as well. I think Umberto Garza's son is actually in the WWE now. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah. yeah, but Hector Garza, who you saw in WCW, was was doing some pretty good work. Was there as a young guy. Uh-huh. But 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 Arlizondo chose me, so I worked this match against Norman Smiley, and. He didn't know what to expect from me, and I didn't know what to expect from him. We had a really good match. And I made $500 because it was the main event. And because it was a championship match, you got double. So I made $1,000 for this match. And we did three falls, and he beat me two out of three falls. But that match started getting around to where the promoter in Mexico City, um, uh, Paco Alonso, tracked me down mm-hmm. and invited me to come to Mexico city to work for him in the big league. So working the, the minor league, so to speak, having that championship match against his champion is what got me the call to go, to go work in Mexico city. So you, that's interesting because for one in Monterey, you're fighting in a bull ring, which must've been kind of bizarre. Anyway, what do you remember about that crowd that night? Well, Wrestling was it was was really popular at that time. It was going through a big uh, a big boom phase because it had just gotten on TV. Uh, I don't think prior to ninety or ninety one wrestling was on TV. So when it got on TV, it was a big deal, and that's why guys like Conan and Vampiro and Negro Casas and Black Magic and El Dandy and Atlantis and Silver King and Tejano and you just name a thousand names. You know, uh, Santo and Blue Panther and Art Bar and Eddie Guerrero. Everybody was super famous. Because wrestling was such a thing at the time. So um, the crowd was always crazy. I remember like I was a teenage heartthrob because I had long blonde hair and they didn't want to put a mask on me. So I was on the cover of all the magazines. I was doing all the press. And I remember this is not exaggerating. There was so many people and girls specifically outside the arena when you're trying to leave, you would basically get attacked and they would grab you and they would kiss you. And every, and like they had really bright red lipstick and i don't know if it was cheap or what but you couldn't get it off so the whole week my face would be kind of red because you're trying to get it off and it would just smear yeah uh, and they were relentless they'd grab your balls like grab your ass like just whatever they could do like it really was like a beatlemania type thing that's wild um, that was, and that not was the it, scene in canada yeah it was not the scene in canada. And, and monterey was mexico city wasn't quite as crazy but when you left Mexico City and went to those outpost towns, it would be nuts. And then Monterey was was insane. So when I went to Mexico City, it was really cool because Paco from the start pushed me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like where you had to start at the bottom. Like he put me there. My very first match there was semi-main event. And I can't recall maybe sometimes being third from the top, maybe, mm-hmm. but Either I was in the main event or the semi-main event on probably 80% of the shows I ever worked for Paco. So right out of the gate, I mean, perception is reality. So when they put this like good-looking kid in the ring, who's a heartthrob, and now I'm Corazon de Leon. It's not mm-hmm. Leon de Oro. It's not the golden lion. Now it's the heart of the lion. And the reason why it worked was, yes, I looked good. I was young. I was 22, 23 years old. But I could really work. Because mm-hmm. I came mm-hmm. through Stu's camp and I was tough. Mm-hmm. So when the guys tried to pull the tricks... And I'd worked Japan a couple of times. So I knew like, okay, when, when, when they don't like the foreigners, they might try and throw a couple of stiff shots, but I'll just fucking hit you right back. Mm-hmm. And because I could work the guys that knew also knew how to work. I remember this guy called Felino, who was Negro Cassis, brother. When I first went there, he was kind of looking down his nose and we had a couple of matches together. He's like, you know, you're really good. Like you're going to do good here. Start getting respect. And I'm not an asshole. And I know what I'm doing. Cause they used to have so many foreign guys there that were just bodybuilder guys that basically sucked. Yeah, well, guys just big can, hulking dudes that could throw you around work. with no finesse. A guy like Vampiro who kind of had a little bit of an attitude. I had none of that. Like, I just wanted to work and do good. And so I was kind of taken under under the wing by all those guys, especially Negro Casas, who's one of the greatest workers of all time. Definitely the Ric Flair of Mexico type of a thing. So he and I worked a lot because he was a huge heel. I was a huge baby face. And he realized he could always have good matches with me. 
Um, and that's kind of where it started to where I was always in the mix, always in the mix there. And I started working with Ultimo Dragon there quite a bit, who then was my connection to go back to Japan for WAR. So from 93 to 95, all I did was work Mexico, Japan and fly back and forth. As a matter of fact, in 94, I think, maybe 95, I wanted, I, I just decided how long can I stay on the road for? Because I had an open invitation. You could stay in Mexico as long as you want. And I had, I was booked on every tour with war in, in Japan. So I'd go to war for two weeks, go to Mexico for three weeks, go to war for two weeks. I think I was on the road for nine months. Did just you pick up both Spanish and Japanese? Spanish, yes. I was really good. Japanese was very hard because uh, Japanese is different. Japanese has different slang to where, like, if you're in Tokyo, that Japanese is different from Sapporo, which is northern, which is different from Fukuoka, which is southern. So you would learn Japanese in Tokyo and get a little bit confidence, then go to Sapporo and no one knew what the hell you were talking about. And there's nothing worse than when you're trying to learn a language, when you think you know what you're doing and people just look at you completely cold faced. So what I did learn was how to read katakana, which is a certain style of characters that they write. There's katakana, kanji, and hiragana. Mm -hmm. Katakana is the most English of, of the Japanese characters. You'll see that there's just a line, a line, not the intricate. So I learned how to read Japanese and I learned cool. how to speak Spanish. Wow. All in the same nine-month period where you're back and forth. Did you pioneer the sushi burrito? <laughs> you wish, right? Yeah, I never had any of that. I never had a sushi burrito. Never got That's the crazy. There's like food trucks everywhere. I'm, I'm on the West Coast. I've been all summer and I'm like, what the fuck is a sushi burrito? And why are they on every corner? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so tell me about the difference between Lucha Libre and like North American wrestling that uh, people will see on AEW Dynamite or if they uh, tune into Raw or something like that. They're going to see that. How is the Lucha Libre culture different than what we have up here in the States? Well, you know, AEW is a bad example because AEW is such a hybrid. It is such a hybrid of lucha and Japanese and European. I mean, the 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 the, the business model, so to speak, has has advanced so far mm -hmm. to where so many guys, even unbeknownst to themselves, are a hybrid. The same way that Chris and Eddie and, and I used to be in Dean Malenko and Ultimate Dragon and the guys from the '90s. Like we learned in so many different places. That when we came to WCW or Smoky Mountain Rust or ECW, we were so much different from everybody else. Cause maybe some guys learned in Memphis or maybe some guys learned in, you know, Canada or Portland or whatever. We yeah. learned in all these places. So we could Lucia, we could do that. We could do chain wrestling because you learn that in Canada and Calgary, especially with Stu and in Europe. We could also do the Japanese hard hitting style. We knew the character. Like I always knew, knew the character of wrestling. Mm -hmm. So I would say that. So if Japanese at the time, was very strong style, stiff. You want characters, but it's not as important. Right. They want the actual like in-ring action. In-ring, they're watching, you know, they're very quiet. But if you do a nice reversal hammer lock, they'll clap because they want to watch the technique. Uh, middle style would be North American, let's say WWE style. You know, more characters, storylines, some good wrestling, you know, especially when Sean and Brett started going, but not, mm -hmm. not the focus. Then you had Lucha Libre, which was mo more of a cartoon. Superheroes and masks, uh, Rudos, which are the bad guys, and the Technicos are the good guys. And it's three on three, and it's very little bit kind of hokey at times. Uh, the, the, the moves are strange. Tons of kids going crazy. Huh. Tons of girls going crazy. So Lucha was the most cartoon-y. Japanese was the most serious and North American was kind of a combination of the two. Like somewhere in the middle. Did, did the cartoony aspect of Lucha excite you? Was it was it more fun or was it just different? Well, it's when in Rome, right? Like some of the things you would do, they would do you would do this spot of the time where they would throw two guys together. Guys would fall down so that their legs were like this, right? Like here's one leg, here's that leg. Then a guy would get on this side and a guy would get on this side and they'd row both the legs. So the two bad guys are down the two good guys are roboting legs and then while the guys are getting roboted a guy would come running and the other guy would give him like a frankensteiner in the middle of the legs and he'd get the pin whether you guys submit it that's pretty looney tunes so you would see that stuff and go what the fuck is going on here? this is so stupid yeah. but you would do it and people would go bananas for it like when we did pwg earlier this year jericho appreciation society in a surprise they did a slow motion spot Mm -hmm. where everyone moves in slow motion and when they were pitching it to me i was like i'd never heard of this it sounds really stupid yeah. but the people here at pwg love it 
So it reminded me of going back to the Mexico days where they love this thing. It's the Australia. The Australia is the star. And the Europa, they would use this finish like constantly. You would see. And I was like, I'm not fucking doing the Australia. Yeah. And it's like, just do the Australia. Shut up. <laughs> so so, so you learn you learn that sort of thing. But then you'd see a guy like Negro Casas mm-hmm. or or uh, Bestia Salvaje or Emilio Charles Jr. These types of guys. Uh, Dandy, Ultimo Dragon. I remember Dandy and I with tag team champions, we worked against Negro Casas and uh, Ultimo Dragon in like a 45 minute marathon match. And there was no comedy in this at all. This was hardcore wrestling. It was Lucha at his best. It was Japanese style at his best. It was Stuart's Dungeon at his best. And we had a great fucking match. I think it even won match of the year in a magazine or something. But the true test was people threw money in the ring. They would do this there. If they liked your match, they would throw money in the ring. And the guys would, would see that. They'd grab beer cups and they'd be like, come on, come on, come on. So you'd walk out of there with two, 3,000 uh, pesos, which at the time would be close to $1,000. It used to it used to be 3,000 pesos, one to three. So, you know, there was four of us in the match. Plus, you keep you you, you, you take care of the referee. And there's always two referees. So six divided by 1,000. I mean, that's an extra 150 bucks each. You know, which was a lot of money, but only because of the appreciation of the people they enjoyed the match so much. So that's really unique and cool, though. Like people yeah. actually can interact with you that way. Yeah, and throwing like money, throwing yeah. and, then, and you would take it, and they would, they'd count it up later. Here's your share. Here's your share. And listen, 150 bucks is 150 bucks. Like it's like fuck. That's really cool. And um, so 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 there was that element where the guy, some of those guys could go. But the other thing is, you're also working. I mean, I used to sometimes work ten matches in a week. You'd work every night, and four. I remember I worked. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday, and four matches on Saturday. So that's four matches on Saturday. Eleven, two, five, and eight, or something like this. And are you making like what are you getting? A couple hundred dollars a match? So I had a guarantee with with Paco Alonso where he was paying me like about three thousand pesos a week, something like that, which Uh is a thousand bucks a week. All right. And then on top of that, I'd get extra. That was a minimum of four shows for him. Mm -hmm. And then if I worked more. He'd send me, okay, you're, 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 they're going to pay you, you know, I don't know, 500 bucks for this match. And fi- so, so at some points, I mean, I remember walking home because I would go home every six weeks or so and I would pack all the cash in the bottom of my, uh, of my, my, you know, suitcase or whatever oh, it would shit. be. Yeah. You know, you'd come home with 12, 13, $14,000 US after, you know, six weeks work for a 23 year old kid. You change that to Canadian, it's 15, 16 grand. I'm the fucking richest guy that I know. You know, and I always had money because of that, because I always saved, but I was really smart. Like, dude, like I can make some good money here. So let me work as many matches as I can. I got nothing else going on. So book me on everything. And then because I had a name value, promoters wanted to see me. And like there's there's a venue in Aragon, it's called. And the the, the guy who who owned it was called Cuchillo, which is a knife. It was this Uh small little crappy little like if you were booked on Arena Aragon, you're like, oh, man. Aragon, it'd be like, oh, this this is gonna suck. But I wrestled there, and two kids used to come with their dad in this shitty little part of Mexico to this this arena and watch the shows, and they watched me many times. And those two little kids grew up to be wrestlers, and their names are Phoenix and Pentazero Miedo. You're fucking shitting me. Yeah, that's insane. So, yeah. It Did you crazy. know that before you like because you worked a uh, you worked a, a gig with Penta at the original All In? Did you? Yeah, know I didn't. That I didn't know. It? We we found that out kind of as we knew each other, and 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 you know, and, and they, they, it's just funny. Like anywhere, like I would say, you never know who's watching, and those guys were there. I mean, there's so many different shows in that area. Uh, in Mexico City, like I said, you could wrestle four times in a day. I think at some point there's like 30 matches in the, in the Mexico City proper because yeah. there's so many people there and so many wrestling shows there. So anyways, you're working quite a bit when you were there and uh, and you were traveling, traveling via bus, the Greyhound bus. You'd buy the, the, the first class Greyhound bus ticket and you'd take the four hour, five hour bus ride to Guadalajara and you'd do the match. And as soon as the match is done, you get in the 12... Uh, a.m. bus back to Mexico City to get there on Mondays where you got to go to Puebla. Like it was a tough schedule. They're like, there's no cars. I mean, someone might have a car, but you're taking the bus, you're staying in a hotel. It's like, it was, it was definitely a young man's uh, 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 way of learning, but I wouldn't change it because I learned a lot about a lot. You're seeing so much of Mexico too, like probably parts of Mexico that like Canadians, Americans don't often see. Wait, oh yeah, everywhere. You ever, you ever heard of Aguas Calientes? You know, places no. like that. <laughs> 
no hot water like you know yeah you, you know you might go to 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 cabo Mm-hmm. Uh, once in a while, I remember there was a weekly Acapulco, but you're thinking Acapulco, you're not working on the beach. You're working in the city, which is about 20 minutes away from the beach. And it's a little dumpy little city. So you're like, Acapulco is going to be great. And then after two weeks, like, fuck, I don't want to go back to Acapulco. You even it's get to trap. see the beach. If you, if you, if you made a, a, a decision, I, mean, I remember like a couple nights that me and ha- King Haku went to Acapulco and we stayed at our friend's hotel and, you know, drank, coconut liquor and got fucked up and like that's fun but when you're working joe you're not there to party like you you, 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 it's like it's great it's a wednesday i work tuesday wednesday morning i go to acapulco i do the show in acapulco i mean i could go to the beach during the day Mm -hmm. but then when the show's done i got to make another town on thursday and i got to go back to mexico city first so there's really not a lot of time to you know enjoy the sun and fun you know and like i said like cabo we might have went there once or twice. Like most of those, like Puerto Vallarta's, they're not really wrestling towns. Most of the wrestling towns are in Mexico proper. Mexico City, Toluca, Puebla. Uh, you know, there's 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 Arena Coliseo in Mexico City. There's Arena Mexico, Mexico City. There's you know Aragon and all these other places. Guadalajara, uh, uh, now Calpan. Like these, they're just places that are just arenas. It just becomes a, 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 a groove of just getting to these places and not really seeing much. Did you ever have anything weird happen to you on a bus? Um, I mean, there's there's a couple times. I remember one time we were on a bus. Uh, first of all, like chickens, dogs, they they would stop on the side of the highway and just pick up whoever's out there. So you literally like if that's why you wanted to try and get like these greyhound or I can't remember it's called like Australia or whatever. Because if not, if you're just on a normal bus, they would literally stop on the side of the road for every single person who was waiting. And I'm not kidding, dude. Dogs, chickens, goats. Whoever was hanging out with the people would be on this damn bus. Like and a chicken would just up. come on the bus. Just And you're kind of sitting there and it's like, what am I doing here? You know, like, <laughs> um, so it's not like the high class traveling that you might expect because it was you're every man for himself. As a matter of fact, Paco, when I first got there, put me with Hector Guerrero to kind of teach me the ropes. Like, here's, where you, here's how you get to the bus station. Here's how you do it. I remember going to the bus station and they would ask your name for the ticket. And mm. I'd always say like, you know, Chris Irvin. Irvin? Irvin, Irvin, Chris, Irvin, Irvin. I finally just say Jose Sanchez. Okay, there's your ticket. Like they're not checking your ID. So I was Jose Sanchez for most of the time because it was so much easier to write than like Chris Irvin, 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 Irvin. That's amazing. I like Jose Sanchez should make an appearance in AEW somewhere in like background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just, it's just me. There's no outfit or anything like that. <laughs> it's just you in like a flannel shirt. Like, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um. Talk to me about your friends in in Mexico, the guys that helped you out, because you're there. Um, you're a foreigner in a in a different land, and you're young, early twenties, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, as far as just daily life, who helped you get by? Well, so we all live in this hotel called Plaza Madrid, mm-hmm. uh, which when I was it's funny because I was walking to the Arena Mexico office to have my first meeting with Paco, and I saw Dorman smiling. He said, "Ask him to put you in the Plaza Madrid in a corner room." And I was like, great, because if not, I'll put you in one of these other places. And they're not nice. Plasma Madrid is where you need to be. Uh-huh. So he put me there. So Black Magic lived there. I lived there. King Haku, Miguel Perez, Mike Lazansky, Eddie lived there. Art Bar lived there. Headhunters lived there. Like whoever was around would would stay there. It was like the nice place, which is funny because I went back there a couple of years ago. when We had a WWE show in Mexico City. We happened to be staying right across the street. And I walked in there and it seemed so fucking small. Cause it was so big at the time, but you go yeah. and ask, it wasn't a dive, but it's not like, it's not like the best hotel. Like it's not even all that great. But at the time it was like five stars, man. Like this is the place for us to be. Yeah. So, you know, we got pretty close there because you know, when, when some of the guys work for AAA and some of the guys work for CMLL, but when you're, you know, there, like you said, a foreigner and, and once in a while we have a day off, what are we gonna do? Let's go Halcyon bowling. What's that? Let's just take a bunch of Halcyons, get fucked up and go bowling and see what happens. Was ended up with King Haku, King Haku overhanding bowling balls down the court. What? Wait, 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 wait. Go tell me more about bowling. How much can you talk about this? Because this is a crazy story. So halcyons were, were, were pills at the time they're supposed to make you sleep, right? Mm-hmm. Sleeping pills. But as people do, wrestlers or musicians, there. Well, let's just take them and stay awake. Okay. Yeah. Why not? Let's see what happens. Get, I mean, fuck, get nothing else to do, right? So you get kind of groggy and kind of messed up, and then let's just go bowling. And see what happens. So 
wackiness ensues. That's just amazing. Like Did you ever get like like in trouble with the bowling alley? Or are they like, I don't know, these guys look kind of scared good. of us because I mean, what are you gonna say to King Haku? He's three hundred pounds and you know the nicest guy in the world. But uh, you know, I, th- I think we had to pay a few fines here and there. Uh, but it was fine. They knew we were, like we weren't doing anything malicious. Like it's not breaking anything to throw the ball. I'm not like he was like throwing it all the time. But it was just it's just having a good time. You know, we, we we were right close to this place called Zona Rosa, which was like the the party area of uh, like the sunset strip for example mm-hmm. so there was so much stuff going on we literally just take the bus down to zona rosa or you could technically even walk there you know just see what kind of trouble you get into and you know if that's if you had a night off and go back to the hotel and, and more debauchery ensues until finally in the morning you wake up and go to work you know yeah yeah um let's talk about mexico now uh, later in your career i mean obviously you you do come back to the states you become a big star and ecw and, and on nitro and later on, you make that incredible debut in, in 99 in the WWF, as it was then in AEW. Have you had a chance to go back and perform there? Yeah, like I mentioned, I mean, we've been, we went to Mexico quite a few times with WWE. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last time that I was there, I specifically remember going to Plaza Madrid, which was great. Um, but yeah, we, we Monterey quite a few times, uh, Mexico City quite a few times. That's about it. We might have done a Guadalajara maybe, but mostly just Monterey because yeah. it's very close. And then Mexico City because obviously it's a huge city and a huge wrestling town. So I was able to go to Arena Mexico once or twice. I, mean, I went and saw Paco Alonso one more time before he passed away. That's cool. uh, I got to see him. But it's amazing. Like We spent a lot of time in Arena Mexico. That's where you would go to wrestle. You could train there. That's where I came up uh, with a lion salt with a bag of dirty laundry. It's actually Dr. Wait, what? Dr. Luther had an idea. He said, why don't you, why don't you do a, a moonsault off the second rope? And I was like, what? How do you do that? He's like, I don't know. It's just an idea that I had that you could probably do. Uh-huh. So I went there and you just do it. And then, of course, you got to figure out the distance. So I, I had a bag of dirty laundry that I used as like a punching bag. And at the time, I would slam it in the middle of the ring and walk three steps. One, two, three to the second rope and do it. And then flip and the lion salt's like a like a back flip from the yeah, like a, like a moon salt from the second rope. Yeah. So that so then when I was if you if you could see tapes when I first started doing it, I would pick the guy up near the ropes and walk one, two, three, slam them, then hit the ropes and do it. And that's kind of how you figure out what area. Now I now I know exactly where I am. I could I can judge, you know, if the yeah. guy's too far or too close, whatever it may be. But you know, you could train in Arena Mexico. But you would also go, that's where they did their booking meetings. And that's where also where you went to go to have meetings with Paco Alonso. Or that's where you went to get paid. That's where you went to find out where your, where your booking sheet was. Because there was no computer or emails. You had to go there and see. So Arena Mexico was kind of the center of the universe for us when we lived there. And, um, you know, to be able to go back there and just see it again, you know, after, you know, making it with the WWE was, 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 uh, was, was, was quite cool, but I really enjoyed working in Mexico. I love working for Paco Alonso. Always took care of me. Always had a plan for me. Like I said, always pushed me. I was the NWA middleweight champion for, for three or four months, which is one of the most prestigious titles of this day. I think Gory Guerrero used to hold it. And yeah, that's cool. Drago used to hell. So it was a pretty big deal to have that title. Um, and had I stayed there longer, I think I probably would have would have gotten even bigger. But what happened was uh, two things. One, Art Bar died in November of 94. And that was pretty crushing. That was the first time that I ever had a, a really close friend die. Yeah. It took a lot of the air out of the sails. It wasn't quite as fun anymore. Mm-hmm. And then uh, right after that, the peso crashed. So what used to be, like I mentioned, one to three. So if you paid me 3,000 pesos, like Paco did, I'd make a 1,000 bucks a week. Yeah. When the peso crashed, it's now divided by seven. So it's not – so think of that. 3,000 divided by 1,000 is, you know, is, you know what I mean? That's it's, easy math. But when you divide it by yeah. seven, you're, you're going back to it's Canada. About, and it it's about 180 work. bucks. So it went from 1,000 bucks a week to about 180 bucks or 200 bucks a week, that sort of thing. Like it was less than 50% of what I was – getting before and Paco couldn't he's like dude like we're still making the same amount of money i can't give you more pesos because the american dollar is so that kind of fucked things up too so by 95 uh, i was really ensconced in war at that point um you know ecw was starting to come to my door and it was time for me to to, to leave mexico and once i left i mean my last match was a was a championship match against apollo dantes which was a great match. And that was the last match I ever wrestled for CMLL, which was probably August of 95. Never went wow. back. Uh, a couple of questions as we wind down here. And, and the reason I wanted to talk to you is just to talk about how travel changes your perception of the world. Um, 
How do you think your mindset changed as a young 20-something-year-old Canadian living in Mexico and, and in Japan at, at that time? Well, my mindset of the world changed? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I th- one thing I always say about, about the, the career that I've had that a lot of the guys have had, you know, when you didn't just learn in one place is that you, you, you get, you learn a lot about, about how to get over uh, in wrestling. Cause if you can get over Mexico city in a arena at a gone, you know how to get over anywhere. Um, you also learn a lot about life lessons, mm-hmm. traveling on your own, uh, being on your own. You know, do you really want to do this? Because it's not easy. If you really want this life, do you really want to get on a bus and travel four hours and do your match against guys that don't want you there? Uh, and then, you know, I remember one time I had to go to Nuevo Leon. It was probably about a five-hour bus ride. Got there. I went for a big dive over the top rope. The guy literally moved and I landed on the fucking molded chairs that were locked in. Like if you go to an old school, like a hockey arena, they're not moving. And that was the last time I ever did a dive over the top rope because I almost fucking died. And I'm hurt now. And I got to take a five-hour ride back to Mexico City, get in at 4 a.m., get in a taxi, go back to Plasma Madrid, catch five hours of sleep, get up at 11 to get ready to go to Guadalajara whatever it was. Do you really want to do this? Because if you do, this is kind of the price that you have to pay. So I really learned. But also, you're very worldly. I mean, dude, by the time I was 25 years old, I'd lived in Mexico, been to Japan probably 30 times. Like, that's a lot for, for a young guy. Oh, yeah. But you le- you're learning, you know. And I think it made me more mature. I learned a lot. Like, when I first got to WWE and it was, there was a, a witch hunt out for me politically, I kind of was able to deal with it a little bit better because I'd been around the world. Like, I know what I'm doing. Like, fuck, you can't fucking psych me out on this shit. So I, I just think it was a really great experience and it was the best way. I wouldn't change anything. Like I was always making money. I wasn't making huge money, but to me, it was huge. You make 30, 40 grand a year wrestling and I'm not spending anything. Hotels are paid for. I mean, you're eating, but other than that, it's like, dude, you're making money hand over fist, especially coming home with the, with the, with the conversion to Canadian. So it was, it was great. And then I also learned a lot of stuff from a lot of guys, like, you know, learning, learning from Negro Casas or all the guys I mentioned earlier, like you don't get a chance to work with guys like that, you know, going to Japan and being with, you know, Jado and Gato. Gato is now the booker of new Japan. And fuck, we were together since 93 in Mexico. That's where we met Ultimo dragon, Genshiro Tenru, Hiromichi Fuyuki, like tricks that I learned from those guys. I still use an AW to this day and no one else knows them. Only me because no one else has had the career that I've had with learning from all these different people all over the world. And it was you learned some party tricks in the, in like the arena Aragon and you've still got it and you pull it out at Wembley sometimes. I mean, you can absolutely, you know, and it's just, and just the timing and the experience and just being, being around the world and traveling and knowing what it's, you know, being on the plane or going through customs, like all these types of things, you know, it's just, it's a bit of 33 year learning experience that I'm still learning to this day. And yes, I have more experience than almost anybody in the business, but I'm still very much open to learning from, 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 from the guys. Now you have to last question I have for you is, is when you go back to Winnipeg, um, do you think that you can, you inspire people there in your hometown to get out in the world more, even if it's just your friends, you know, guys you grew up with. I think so. I mean, Winnipeg has, has a, as a, it's infamous for not really supporting their hometown guys, but I think you get a lot of that, but I think overall just people that are, that, that are wrestling fans in general. I mean, I've written so many books and I've, I've, I've been on so many shows. It's like, yeah, Winnipeg for sure. But Winnipeg's not as closed off as it used to be. Like when I first came out of Winnipeg, there was nothing out of Winnipeg. There was Burton Cummings and the Guess Who. There was the Crash Test Dummies. That's about it. You know, the world is a lot, is a lot smaller now. So uh-huh. just because you're in Winnipeg, I mean, there's, there's wrestling companies there that you can watch the show the night it happens. It's not like it used to be where you were stuck in this kind of glacier, small little world and just hoping to get your name out there. Now you can wrestle anywhere on any given night and people around the world can see it, which is great in some ways and is bad in others because you only have one chance to make a first impression. So um, I just think that, that, you know, Winnipeg was was a real motivator for me because I really wanted to get out of there. But how do you do that? You know, and that's why, you know, pre-internet, you had to really really figure it out for yourself. And and once we're able to do that, um, 
all these great things happen. Now you've got, I still think that Winnipeg is the, is the wrestling capital of Canada. Don't give me Calgary. Who was born in Calgary? Bret Hart, Owen Hart, maybe a couple others. Toronto, there's a few, but Winnipeg, you got Jericho, Kenny Omega, Roddy Piper, Don Callis. Name four bigger stars from one city in Canada. And I'm sure there's a few, you know, the Pat Patterson eras of Montreal and stuff, but for the modern era, I'd, I'll go with Piper, Jericho, uh, Omega, and Callis over anybody else in Canada. Winnipeg is the pro wrestling capital of Canada. There I said it. There's your headline. You heard it on the record. Uh, Chris, I will say you have inspired people to travel. Um, my exploration company, that we do fund like real expeditions or we try to. It's called Sold Outside. Obviously, that's taken from a pay-per-view that you were part of. So thank mm-hmm. you for that little bit of information. Um, that's Chris Jericho. You can catch him November 6th at Lafayette's Music Room in Memphis. He's going to be playing with Seventh Day Slumber and Nocturnal Affair. He's got a whole tour. So if you're in the U.S., check out the new Fozzie's uh, upcoming tour. And if you didn't know it already, Chris, Lafayette's is where Kiss cut their teeth in Memphis. I heard. You told me that. It's exciting. Yeah. It's a pretty cool place. Uh, I, I've never seen a real rock show there. Um, so I'm excited to see what you guys do. Well, you're about to get one, man. Appreciate that. The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast. And hit up today's guest on his own show, Talk is Jericho, available on podcast streaming apps across the world.